Why don't you do the intro to the podcast? From executive producer Isaac Saul, this is Tangle. Good morning! Good afternoon, good evening. My name is Isaac Saul, and this is Tangle, where we talk about the latest updated who's he, what's it news from across the board, across the island, across the spectrum. I'm your host, Yitzi Saul. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's pretty good. All right, all right, yeah, we'll get into it now. Okay. From executive producer Isaac Saul, this is Tangle. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Tangle Podcast, a place we get views from across the political spectrum, some independent thinking, and a little bit of my take. Yes, I am still your host, Isaac Saul, that voice you heard. That's my wife, Phoebe, being not not very nice, in my opinion. In case you missed it, we released this morning a Valentine's Day podcast. If you did not see it on your feed, I suggest going back and listening to it. Last year, Phoebe and I sat down and I interviewed her for Valentine's Day. It was kind of impromptu, a little bit just spontaneous decision we made. We had just done all the the reader interviews for a series we released on the podcast where I interviewed five random Tangle readers. And then I decided it was Valentine's Day. I wanted to interview Phoebe. I did. It turned into a very popular episode. So at the risk of ruining it with a sequel, we ran it back this year. I did not want to deprive all you guys of the typical daily Tangle podcast because there's a lot of important news today, and we decided ultimately it'd be better to just separate the two. And that intro you heard Phoebe do just now was her doing her best impersonation of me at the end of our Valentine's Day podcast. So definitely go check it out. We talk about her experience in law school, her views of the 2024 election, which she really did not like me asking, our relationship the challenges of being married to the guy who runs Tangle, her first impression of all the people on our staff. And then at the end, I told her I would give her a chance to ask me any questions she wanted to on the podcast. And she came prepared with four questions that were very appropriately Phoebe questions. So uh, you should go check it out. But for now, today... We are going to be covering Trump and his comments about NATO sparked some controversy. We're going to jump in and explain what exactly happened. Before we do, though, we'll kick it off, as always, with some quick hits. First up, the House of Representatives impeached Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas in a 214 to 213 vote for allegedly failing to enforce border and immigration laws. He is the second cabinet member in United States history to be removed from office. The Senate is expected to dismiss the charges. Number two, Democrat Tom Suozzi, a former congressman, won New York's third congressional district in a special election. Suozzi flipped the seat that was held by former Representative George Santos, the Republican. Number three, the latest inflation report was mixed, with the consumer price index in January falling to 3.1% in year-over-year growth down from 3.4% rise in December. However, that was higher than analyst predictions of 2.9% 
And on a month-to-month basis, it rose 0.3%, an increase from last month's 0.2% rise. Number four, workers from Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash are planning to strike today over fair pay and safety. Roughly 130,000 drivers are expected to decline rides to and from airports from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. local time. And number five, Russia put Estonia's prime minister on a wanted list after the removal of Soviet-era monuments. Separately, Ukraine says it sunk the Caesar Kunikov, a large Russian naval ship off the coast of Crimea. Former President Donald Trump under fire tonight after saying he would support Russia attacking U.S. allies that don't pay what he deems their fair share. His comments threatening to upend the NATO alliance if he retakes the White House and sparking swift backlash from both sides of the aisle. Well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. Here in Washington, President Biden today came out swinging against former President Donald Trump, calling his comments about Russia invading NATO countries shameful and dumb. During a rally in South Carolina on Saturday, former President Donald Trump sparked controversy with comments about how he would respond if a member of NATO that wasn't meeting its defense obligations was attacked. NATO was busted until I came along, Trump said at the rally. I said, everybody's going to pay. They said, well, if we don't pay, are you still going to protect us? I said, absolutely not. They couldn't believe the answer, Trump said. Trump then recounted how one of the presidents of a big country asked him if the U.S. would defend them from an invasion by Russia if they weren't paying. No, I would not protect you, Trump recalled saying to that president. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You gotta pay. You gotta pay your bills. A quick reminder, NATO stands for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It is a military alliance established in 1949 after World War II to function as a counter to Soviet armies stationed throughout Central and Eastern Europe. After the Cold War ended, NATO has continued on as a military organization of 31 nations committed to defending each other's sovereignty. The fundamental purpose of NATO is described in Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty, quote, an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all. And consequently, they agree that if such an armed attack occurs, each of them, in exercise of the right of individual or collective self-defense, recognized by Article 51 of the Charter of the United Nations, will assist the party or parties so attacked by taking forthwith individually and in concert with the other parties such action as it deems necessary, including the use of armed force to restore and maintain the security of the North Atlantic area. During President Trump's time in office, he repeatedly complained that other countries in NATO did too little to contribute to its defense and finances, often criticizing the fact that the United States has an outsized burden. NATO has a non-binding target that each member spends a minimum of 2% gross domestic product on their own defense, but most countries don't meet that target. In 2022, just seven of the 31 members were hitting that target, but NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said that number will be more than half sometime this year. Responding to Trump, President Biden called his comments un-American. The former president has sent a dangerous and shockingly, frankly, un-American signal to the world. 
Just a few days ago, Trump gave an invitation to Putin to invade some of our NATO allies, Biden said at the White House. He said if an ally didn't spend enough money on defense, he would encourage Russia to do whatever the hell it wants. Can you imagine a former president of the United States saying that? The whole world heard it, and the worst thing is, he means it. Today, we're going to examine some responses to Trump's comments and the debate about NATO from the right and the left, and then my take. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, first up, we'll take a look at what the right is saying. Some on the right are disappointed in Trump's comments and suggest NATO remains vital to U.S. interests. Many criticize Trump's rhetoric but say his underlying critique of other NATO countries was sound. Others say the comments are being distorted by the media. National Review's editors wrote that NATO is worth defending. NATO has been an extraordinary American success story. It held the line in Western Europe throughout the Cold War, and it did so peacefully, saving countless U.S. lives. It underpinned Russia's leadership of the West militarily, politically, and economically, the editor said. With Russia now engaged on a revanchist mission, most bloodily in Ukraine, it is essential that no signal be sent out of the U.S. that could lead Moscow to think it could get away with attacking a smaller NATO member. Some NATO countries have much more to do, and there is still reason enough for Trump to bring up again the issue of those that are not pulling their weight. But however successful his past bludgeoning has been, he needs to tread more delicately now. The Pax Americana is visibly crumbling, making the world a more dangerous place. This means that the U.S. should take even more care not to give its enemies or its allies any reason to question its resolve. Casting doubt on NATO's collective defenses does just that. The Washington Examiner editorial board said NATO outrage at Trump is deserved, so is outrage at Europe's fecklessness. Trump's suggestion that he would encourage Vladimir Putin to launch an attack on a U.S. ally is plainly unconscionable. Even if he only said this to emphasize NATO's reliance on America, it is an outrageous dereliction of his duty to choose his words carefully. Trump is publicly musing about being open to wars of aggression against people who are American friends, the board said. Trump's words cede political space to China as it seeks to woo American allies with the offer of massive investment in return for their political obedience. This threatens the foundations of an international order that has given America and its allies wealth and security since 1945. The ironic fact, however, is that beneath Trump's crass delivery, there lies an important truth. The notion that NATO members who fail to spend 2% of their economy on defense should not expect unconditional American protection is not an outrageous one. Indeed, it is outrageous that they do so, the board said. A 2% minimum on defense spending is reasonable, especially amid renewed Russian military imperialism. Western European complaints of economic challenges and meeting NATO's target are utterly false. They fail to get there because they arrogantly presume American forbearance. In PJ Media, Matt Margolis argued the media is lying about Trump's NATO comments. 
In light of the terrible week that Joe Biden had, it was inevitable that the media would try to drum up some fake controversy about Donald Trump. In fact, they happily obliged by grossly distorting comments Trump made during a campaign speech, Margolis wrote. These characterizations are false, since when has the media covered Trump accurately? Before making the comments about NATO, Trump was discussing the substantial financial commitment the United States has made to Ukraine, surpassing $200 billion, and the deep disparity between the U.S. contribution and that of European nations, which collectively stands at $25 billion. He said this wasn't fair because the war in Ukraine affects them more directly, and the economy of the United States is roughly equivalent to the size of the collective economy of the European nations, Margolis said. This wasn't a warning to NATO allies that he's going to let Russia do whatever the hell they want. It was a story about how he got NATO nations to pay their commitments while he was president. All right, that is it for what the right is saying, which brings us to what the left is saying. The left is alarmed by Trump's comments and worries his posturing has already damaged NATO's credibility. Some contend that Trump is openly aligning himself with the anti-American interests. Others malign the press for equating Biden's gaffes with Trump's harmful rhetoric. In Bloomberg, Mark Champion wrote that Trump may keep the U.S. and NATO, but the damage is done. Threatening to abandon Article 5 undermines its deterrent value without having to actually do anything. It's as though in a real estate negotiation, every hardball threat didn't just pressure the other side, but also caused part of the building to collapse. Be convincing enough about the U.S. disinterest in defending Lithuania, for example, Trump once called the idea crazy, and the whole edifice of deterrence in Europe falls. The temptation of adversaries to test NATO's collective defense commitment could only grow, Champion said. Make no mistake, Europe's NATO members need to spend more on their own defense. Every American president since the end of the Cold War has felt the same, and many Europeans have too, Champion added. Whether Europe will be able to respond fast enough to the ongoing U.S. retrenchment that merely Trump caricatures is a different question. Yet it's what Putin actually does that's changing the security assessments behind defense spending decisions. A Trump 2.0 won't alter that, but in leveraging Article 5 commitments to try, he does have the power to make a bad security situation in Europe infinitely worse. In the Daily Beast, David Rothkopf said Trump is telling us he's an enemy of the American people. Trump made it clear, once again, that he not only doesn't support the international order that so many of our forebears fought to create and defend, but he would welcome it if one of America's vilest enemies attacked our closest friends and allies in Europe. In fact, he said he would encourage it, Rothkopf wrote. Quite a statement considering their recent history of war crimes in Ukraine and elsewhere. NATO members have committed to contribute 2% of GDP toward our collective defense, but they don't pay dues. NATO is not a protection racket in which the U.S. plays the role of gangsters who run it, Rothkopf said. Trump's fiend concern about NATO contributions has little to do with the most shocking elements of his stance, his contempt for our allies and his support for our enemies. The MAGA GOP has demonstrated that undermining our security and that of our allies while advancing Russian interests is now a core tenet of its politics. In USA Today, Rex Hupke argued that Trump's NATO threat gets less attention than Biden's gaffes. Only one puts Americans at risk. Trump's cavalier NATO comment is as ignorant as it is unhinged and as dangerous as it is stupid. But Trump threatening to upend Western democracy was just one of the notable things he did since Biden mixed up the presidents of Mexico and Egypt, Hupke wrote. 
If we're going to argue that the level of media hysteria following the Biden news was appropriate, then the attention paid to Trump's repeated gaffes, memory lapses, and anti-democratic posturing and description of all who disagree with him as tyrants and villains should sure as hell be equivalent. No news organization would be biased to treat the cruel or racist or dishonest or gibberishy things Trump says each day as newsworthy. Trump could absolutely become president again, and anything that downplays his true nature while zooming in tighter on Biden's issues is irresponsible and not proper news judgment, Upke added. One is a normal candidate with ample flaws and policies some will dislike. The other is a criminal defendant who constantly shows he's a raging narcissist and a profound threat to this country and the world. All right, that is it for what the right and the left are saying, which brings us to my take. So when people talk about unfair and hysterical coverage of Trump, I actually think this is a great example. Trump did not give an invitation to Putin to invade some of our NATO allies, as Biden claimed, and many in the media parroted. He is not telling us he's an enemy of the American people, as David Rothkopf said in The Daily Beast. And his off-the-cuff comments at a rally in South Carolina are not going to have catastrophic real-world consequences, as CNN's Nick Patton Walsh said. It's worth stepping back and explaining how this works. NATO allies are not delinquent on their bills to NATO, as Trump often claims. But Trump isn't posturing as a gangster offering protection either. NATO countries contribute to the alliance with military readiness that we can all depend on throughout the regions NATO covers. As part of that readiness, NATO defense ministers agree to commit 2% of their gross domestic product to their own defense spending. This ensures, for instance, that a country like Latvia is going to have something to offer militarily to the alliance if the time ever calls for it. Trump's rhetoric about bills being paid and NATO fees are misleading because he makes it sound like everyone is supposed to be putting their money in a big shared pot and some countries aren't. That isn't what is happening. There's a pool for direct operational funding, but countries like Germany pay just as much as we do, and all that money pales in comparison to defense spending by individual nations. What Trump is doing is making the point that NATO allies who don't fully meet their obligations on their own defense spending should not expect the United States to unconditionally defend them for all of time. Is that such a radical idea? The United States plays principal of the world and spends an inordinate amount of money, more than the next 10 countries combined, on our military defenses, which we mostly employ to protect allies and fund proxies overseas. In many ways, I'm okay with this. I'd rather it be us and NATO allies doing this because I trust the values of American and European leadership more than I trust the values of the leaders in Russia or China or Iran. Maybe that makes me another brainwashed Westerner who has fallen victim to decades of propaganda. Maybe I'm just selfish because I prefer to be us, American voters, who have an outsized say in guiding how the world operates. But even if you lament that order, it's still there, and it's an extremely privileged position that many Americans seem to take for granted or outright loathe for reasons I don't quite get. So let me be crystal clear. NATO is imperative, as is our membership in it and our long-term commitment to it. NATO is, without question, one of the most successful peace deals in global history. If you think what is happening in Ukraine and Gaza feels destabilizing right now, just imagine if every country in Europe and the Middle East were acting entirely on their own interests, trying to pick who to tie their fate to and firing in all directions. NATO is a key reason why dozens of conflicts in the last 75 years have not turned into the Third World War. 
And yes, Trump has had very, very bad policy postures toward NATO, like sending signals he'd leave, which if followed through with would be awful for global peace, terrible for the United States, and destabilizing for the current world order. But pressuring allies to pay more, to meet their stated goals, saying that actually we're not just going to accept that they don't follow through on pulling their weight and will defend their territory anyway, that position should be perfectly acceptable. In fact, 49% of Americans supported that in 2018, and just a third were opposed to it, and another 18% were unsure. It's the kind of anti-status quo, rock-the-boat, Trumpian position that makes him so popular, and that could actually be very beneficial to our calcified foreign policy. And guess what? It works. Look at how much more the non-U.S. members contributed when Trump was president than they did before or after he left office. In 2015, they had committed just 1.6% more than they did the year before. In 2016, they had committed just 3% more than they did the year before. In 2017, when Trump was president, they committed 5.9% more than the year before. In 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020, those non-U.S. NATO members committed more than they did in any of the five years before Trump took office and in any of the two years since. In 2023 and 2024, that number has gone up again, largely because of the war in Ukraine. These are numbers from NATO's own report. And before you try to explain to me reasons why this had nothing to do with Trump, you should know that NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg thanked him for pushing countries in the alliance to commit more. What's more, the Eastern Bloc of NATO countries that would be most at risk of a Russian attack, Lithuania, Latvia, Poland, and now Finland, are the ones that are all safely meeting this 2% threshold anyway. Do we really need to wring our hands over what would happen if Putin attacked Italy? Even if he did, and even if we were to take Trump's words completely literally, which I wouldn't, Biden and the White House can respond in plenty of ways without making ridiculous claims like Trump is inviting Putin to invade the rest of Europe. They could, for instance, point out that in 2022, only seven countries were over the 2% threshold, but Stoltenberg said more than half will be before 2024 ends. Even though Russia's invasion of Ukraine is probably the reason for that, Biden could still take some credit for working with our allies. The White House could note that European countries are actually digging way deeper into their pockets to defend Ukraine, as the U.S. isn't even in the top 10 when their aid is measured as a percentage of GDP. They could alternatively make an argument about why it is okay for these countries not to meet their 2% commitments to NATO right now and explain how they plan to ensure more countries do so in the future. All of these would be perfectly reasonable ways to respond to Trump's comments. Instead, they go back to Trump-Russia hysteria. In the end, this is mostly a ginned-up controversy that does not represent some global threat to world peace. What would be a global threat to world peace is if Trump actually does abandon this alliance during a second term, which he very well might. That wasn't part of his comments this time, but that wouldn't be out of the question for Trump, and calculating the risk of that is important. So far, though, his track record with NATO is getting other countries to contribute more and making them all less reliant on us. Nothing about that or his pressure on those countries to continue to contribute more deserves criticism. We'll be right back after this quick break. All right, that is it for my take, which brings us to your questions answered. This one's from Brian in New Mexico. 
Brian said Trump and Biden are going to be the nominees, and one of them is going to be president in 2025, unless dot, 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 they die. What would happen exactly if Biden wins the election with Kamala Harris as VP and dies before being inaugurated? Kamala Harris becomes acting president and Speaker Mike Johnson would become acting VP. Does the president-elect pass down to Harris? Does she have to keep Johnson as VP? Would the three-month term prevent her from running in 2028? Okay, so this is all a little bit morbid. I understand a lot of people are thinking about this question, so I'll try to answer it honestly. There are two timing scenarios here. So first, in the event Biden wins the election in November and then dies or becomes incapacitated after the meeting of the Electoral College in December, where electors cast their ballots for who won the state's election, it wouldn't be very complicated. Kamala Harris would become president. She wouldn't serve a three-month term either. She would only be president-elect until Inauguration Day, and then she would begin her first four-year term, and then, yes, she could run again in 2028. There's actually a constitutional clause for this. It reads, If at the time fixed for the beginning of the term of the president, the president-elect shall have died, the vice president shall become president. In the event Biden gets elected in November and then dies or becomes incapacitated before the meeting of the Electoral College, things could get a little more complicated. There have been faithless electors before, and some state actors could go rogue, casting ballots for people other than Biden and Harris. This would set off a constitutional crisis, but it is pretty unlikely. Most states have laws binding the electors to vote for who won, and those that don't would probably meet quickly to implement them if we were facing this scenario. As for Speaker Mike Johnson, his role would be non-existent. I've seen some misleading viral posts about presidential succession over the years that have suggested otherwise, and maybe you saw them too, but those are misinterpretations of the fact that the House Speaker is second in line to assume the presidency, doing so if both the president and the vice president are incapacitated. In reality, Kamala Harris or any vice president would become president and then pick the next vice president the same way a president would. The new vice president would then need a simple majority of approval in the House and Senate, which could get interesting, but there is no world in which the House Speaker automatically becomes the vice president. Anyway, great question, scary times, hopefully not something we actually have to deal with. All right, next up is our under the radar section. The Centers for Disease Control is considering a major loosening of its COVID-19 recommendations, including no longer advising that Americans isolate for five days before returning to work or school if they test positive. Instead, the CDC would recommend an infected person go back to their normal routines if they have been fever-free for 24 hours without medication, similar to the standard for the flu and other respiratory viruses. That guidance would put the CDC in line with policies that are already in place in Oregon and California and would be the first change to the CDC's isolation policy since late 2021 when their recommendation decreased from 10 days of isolation to five. The New York Times has the story. It is paywalled. There's a link to it in today's episode description. All right, next up is our numbers section. The number of countries that initially comprised NATO when it was founded in 1949 is 12. The number of countries in NATO today is 31. Of the 31 countries in NATO, the number that meet the 2% GDP expenditure requirement in 2023 is 11. The number of soldiers lost by the United Kingdom, Canada, France, and Germany, respectively, 
fighting in Afghanistan on behalf of the United States after 9-11 was 455, 158, 86, and 54. We've also got a couple charts about military spending and NATO forces in today's newsletter if you want to go check those out. All right, and last but not least, our Have a Nice Day section. Sergeant Bernard Morgan, dressed in the same uniform he wore 80 years ago when he was the youngest sergeant in the Royal Air Force to take the beach in Normandy in 1944 and prepared for a special occasion. Well, we got a theme today here. For his 100th birthday, Sergeant Morgan gathered with his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren and read them a note he's kept with him since two days before World War II ended. As a codebreaker in the Royal Air Force, Sergeant Bernard deciphered the message of Germany's surrender and has kept it with him for 79 years. The Imperial War Museum in London and the Manchester both wanted the original copy. They weren't interested in a photocopy, but I'm keeping it for my family, he said. Good News Network has this story, and there's a link to it in today's episode description. All right, everybody, that is it for today's podcast. As I mentioned at the top, we've also got a Valentine's Day pod that came out this morning if you want to go check it out. We'll be right back here, same time tomorrow, covering most likely the New York 3rd Congressional District and the election that happened there yesterday with some somewhat surprising but very important results. So hopefully we'll see you then. Have a good one. Peace. Our podcast is written by me, Isaac Saul, and edited and engineered by John Wall. The script is edited by our managing editor, Ari Weitzman, Will Kaback, Bailey Saul, and Sean Brady. The logo for our podcast was designed by Magdalena Bakova, who is also our social media manager. Music for the podcast was produced by Diet75. And if you're looking for more from Tangle, please go to readtangle.com and check out our website. Our website.